The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship as always. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship because we violate the righteousness of God. At that point, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament teaches us that uh, Jesus said that when He left, He would send the Spirit of Truth, the Helper, that is the Comforter, who would enable us and guide us into all truth. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer. To use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 states, If we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father as part of the privacy of the priesthood of the believer, that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's simply a matter of grace because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and paid the price for all our sins. It's not a matter of trying to impress God with our sincerity or impress God with the fact that we'll never do it again or impress God with our remorse because God knows that we'll commit that same sin 5,972 more times. So uh, our uh, remorse doesn't impress him a whole lot. He simply wants us to acknowledge our sin, and then he forgives us. The slate is wiped clean. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. We're instantly restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can continue our spiritual growth. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather together in the freedoms of this nation to worship you. Father, we thank you for those who have preceded us in this nation, those who were uh, willing to give the ultimate sacrifice, to make the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms, those who have fought in all of the wars in the history of our country, those who have defended, those who have purchased our freedoms with their life's blood. Father, we pray now for our nation in this conflict of terrorism. We pray for the wisdom of our president and for congressional leaders, for military leaders. We pray that they would be able to execute the policies in a manner that brings victory. We pray for the enemy that they would make mistakes, and we pray that we might be able to find them and discover them uh, as soon as possible. Father, we pray for this church. We thank you for it. We thank you for the opportunity that it provides in order for us to learn your word. We know that it is your word that is the only source of absolute truth in the universe. As we study your word, we learn how to think about life as you think about life. And as such, we align our thinking to reality. So, Father, now as we study these important truths about history, about your plan for Israel, your plan for the Gentile nations, your overall plan and purpose in history, We pray that we can understand and assimilate these things, that they might give us a greater motivation to live in such a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
couple of announcements I forgot. Announcement number one, there's a deacons meeting after class. Announcement number two, uh, there's a sign-up sheet on the table out in the foyer for those who are planning to go to the uh, attend the Christmas party. And announcement number three, July 21st and 22nd, Baraka Church down in Houston is going to hold an ordination uh, service. And so uh, there are people who are interested in getting ordained. And Dan Ingram, who's been here the last couple of summers, Dan will be ordained uh, at that time. And so I know some of you may be interested in going. Some of you may know somebody who is going to seminary or interested in ordination, and they can uh, contact the church down there at that time. But for any of you who are interested in going, I thought I would let you know this far in advance so you can plan your summer vacation accordingly. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 7, although we're not going to get very far this evening. There's a major shift taking place in the book of Daniel between Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 1 through 6 is more about Daniel and his life. Once we get into Daniel chapter 7, we get into one of the most significant sections of prophecy in the Old Testament. This is really exciting. There is such detail here uh, from Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9. Details about God's plan for history and how God is going to uh, work out His plan, eventually restoring Israel to the land. Uh, details about God's plan of salvation for mankind and how God is at work uh, behind the scenes, manipulating the progress, the rise and fall of nations. And all of this is forecast. All of this is prophesied down to, in some cases, minute detail by the prophet Daniel. This is one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is not just the word of men about God or about their uh religious experiences, but it is God's objective revelation to man. And as we go through this, we're going to be impressed again and again with how Daniel, who lived in approximately 600 to 530 B.C., how Daniel, who wrote these prophecies and who was given these visions by God, accurately foretells down to uh, minute detail. Which kingdoms will rise, when they will fall, who will replace them, and the characteristics of these kingdoms. This cannot happen by pure chance. This isn't like something uh, you read in Nostradamus. It's not like something you read in the horoscope in the newspaper. Uh, this is not something that can be uh, manipulated by people to mean whatever. Now, there's always people who come along who are ignorant of interpretation, any kind of interpretation um, Techniques, and they try to make Scripture mean whatever they want it to mean. And they can come up with all kinds of crazy things. But interpretation is, uh, part of interpretation is a science. There are rules. And God interpreted these visions specifically, as we'll see when we get into Daniel 7. God sent an angel who, after Daniel received the vision, the angel tells Daniel specifically what the elements of the vision mean. It's not up to Daniel to try to just guess and figure it out. It's not left for us to guess and figure it out. But these symbols that we're going to see in Daniel 7, 
are symbols that are used again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament so that Daniel 7 through 12 truly is a key to understanding prophecy in the New in, in uh, both Old and New Testament. Now let's remind ourselves a little bit of the outline of Daniel. What we're going to do tonight is, uh, what I want to do tonight is sort of uh, congeal for us what we've studied so far in the first six chapters. I want to make sure we've got that down and understand that because that becomes the backdrop and the framework for understanding what is going to be covered in the next six chapters. In the first chapter, we see the history of the prophet. We learn about Daniel, who's a young man who's faced with a crisis. Daniel is a young man who is faced with a crisis, and he handles that crisis by applying the truths of the Word of God, the absolute principles of the Word of God that he has stored in his soul. He and his three friends, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, are basically not quite kidnapped, but they're taken as captives, deported by a foreign power, by the Chaldean Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. They're deported to Babylon. There they are ripped away from their cultural background, and they are because they are all four members of the aristocracy of Israel, they're going to be retrained, and the attempt is going to be made to reprogram them so that they can serve as, as uh, bureaucrats in the Chaldean Empire. But there we see that Daniel and his friends take a stand for the Word of God. They, are, uh, they maintain their... Uh, integrity, they maintain their faithfulness to the Mosaic law. Uh, even when it comes into conflict with the Chaldean Empire, God blesses them and they rise to the highest positions in the empire. Daniel rises to the, to the chief of all the advisors to Nebuchadnezzar, who is one of the greatest of all the uh, ancient kings. In the second section, we studied the history of the Gentiles are revealed from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 28. And then from 8.1 to 12.13, the end of the book, the focus is on God's plan and program for Israel. So we're still in the section dealing with the history of the Gentile nations. And this isn't history in terms of what has already happened. This is prophecy. Prophecy is history that is revealed by God ahead of time. So we see God's plan for the Gentiles and then God's plan for Israel. And this is mirrored by the fact that the first chapter is written in Hebrew, the language of the Jews. The middle section from 2.1 to 7.28 is written in Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew. And, but that was the lingua franca of the day in the, both the uh, Chaldean Empire and the Persian Empire. And then when the shift goes back to Israel in 8.1 to 12.13, the language returns to Hebrew. Now we saw. Now before we get going, I want to review this. Why do we study prophecy? Why is this important to study prophecy? Too often, when uh, people get into prophecy, they do it for some sort of sensational aspect. They do it because they want to satisfy their curiosity. There's all kinds of reasons people study prophecy. Sometimes people say, "I get the objection of why even study prophecy? It's more important to study." Issues that relate to our everyday life, learning about uh, the problem-solving devices, learning more about salvation and how Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and understanding the dynamics of the spiritual life. But prophecy is an important and vital aspect of Scripture, and it covers a tremendous amount of Scripture. Twenty-eight percent of the Bible was prophetic when it was revealed. 
That means that at the time it was revealed to, to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, it was yet in the future. Now, some of that has already been fulfilled, but not all of it. Twenty-eight percent of the Bible was prophetic when it was revealed. Fifteen percent of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. Fifteen percent of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. That means little less than one out of every uh, five verses. Eighteen percent of the New Testament epistles, those epistles which are written to the church, for the church, specifically for the church-age believer... 18% of New Testament epistles, which is one, almost one out of every five verses in, in the New Testament, is unfulfilled prophecy. Almost one out of every five verses is unfulfilled prophecy in the New Testament. One in 12 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. One in 12 verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Christ. And if you don't understand the second coming of Christ... You don't understand how that'll come, when it comes, what the events are that surround that, then you will not understand what the Bible's talking about in those verses. One in ten verses in the epistles uh, refer to the second coming of Christ. So one in ten in the epistles. That's ten percent of the epistles talk about the second coming of Christ. And then, as one writer commented, more than 60, at least 60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected by eschatology issues. That's prophecy. Study the last things. That's what eschatology means. Are affected by eschatology issues to be properly understood. That means they talk about the kingdom of God. They talk about, use a term like mystery. They talk about the blessed hope. They talk about the coming of Christ. Something in those verses relates to prophecy. So if you don't understand uh, what the Bible says about prophecy, you don't understand God's overall plan and purposes for mankind, then you will not properly understand or interpret those verses. Then that's 60% of the New Testament. So Daniel 7 through 12 is going to focus on prophecy. Now, why, what does prophecy do for us? First of all, prophecy, biblical prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign. Biblical prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign. That's a principle that we've seen emphasized again and again in Daniel 1 through 6. God is demonstrating to the Jews that He is not just the God of Israel, but He is the God over the Gentiles. He is the God who brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, and because of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance, God caused him to succumb to a mental illness called boanthropy, and for seven years he lived like an animal, ate grass, slept out in the fields, and then at the end of those seven years God restored his mind to him, at which time Nebuchadnezzar realized that God was the God, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, was the God of history, and the God who uh, brought him to power despite his own uh, tremendous abilities. But God was in charge, and at which time Nebuchadnezzar became an Old Testament believer. He, in the Old Testament, you became saved by believing that God would provide a Savior in the future. And he trusted in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had told him about. And he became a believer knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross for our sins. So Bible prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign. We saw this is a time of chaos 
for these men. That Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have seen their nation defeated in war. They have seen probably family and friends killed, die of starvation, go through horrible suffering. And yet they know that God is in charge. That there is nothing that happens in history that is outside the control of God. Therefore, they can relax in the midst of the most horrible circumstances. The study of prophecy reminds us that God is good. It reminds us that God is good, that despite the fact that evil exists, God eventually is going to triumph over evil. And that's an important point to realize because one of the things that you will often hear uh, people raise a question about concerning the Bible is how can you believe in God? How can a good God let horrible things happen to people? And God allows creatures to exercise their free will, and that includes making bad decisions and evil decisions and the consequences of those decisions. And we see that played out in history. And yet only in Christianity is evil eventually conquered, confined, and restricted for all eternity to the lake of fire because it will be judged at some point. And there will be, as as R.G. Lee once said in a famous sermon, there will be payday someday. And there will be a final judgment. So the study of prophecy reminds us that God is good. Third, the study of prophecy motivates us to prepare spiritually for eternity. The study of prophecy motivates us to prepare spiritually for eternity. We know that when we die physically, that's not the end. That man is destined for either heaven or eternal condemnation, one or the other. And the only solution is What do you think about Jesus Christ? See, God doesn't place it on works. See, works aren't going to be good enough because nobody can be good enough to merit the favor of God. God's standard is absolute perfection. Nobody can be good enough. So God sent Jesus Christ to go to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins so that he would pay the penalty. Now the issue is simply whether or not we accept Christ as Savior. Now, once you accept Christ as Savior and and you are Regenerated, Scripture says we're justified, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So once we're justified, then the issue is, what are you going to do with your life? Those are the two most important decisions that anybody has to make. Number one, what do you think about Jesus Christ? And number two, now that you're saved, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to grow and advance in your spiritual life by studying the Word, making that the number one priority in life? Or are you just going to live life the way you want to and basically forfeit much that is our birthright as believers? You won't lose your salvation, but you will lose many of the blessings and many of the privileges that you would have had otherwise because of God's grace. So this is why we study prophecy. Now, as we look at Daniel, we see there's two basic divisions in Daniel. In the first six chapters, we have Daniel's personal history. We have the story of Daniel's rise from a young teenager brought in as a captive from uh, Judah, his training in chapter 1, his elevation to the chief of all the advisors of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw in chapter 2 their their, uh, testing with the uh, great idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. We saw... Uh, Daniel's test with the uh, in chapter all the way up to Daniel's test in the lion's den in chapter six when he's an 83 year old man. So the first six chapters deal with Daniel's personal history, and then chapters seven through 12 are going to deal primarily with prophetic revelation. The visions that are given in chapters seven through 12 were all given in the time framework of the first six chapters. 
So we know that when Daniel saw the handwriting on the wall, literally the finger writing on the wall, in Daniel chapter 5, announcing the God's judgment on the Chaldean Empire and that the Persians were about to come in through the gates and wipe out that, that empire, when Daniel saw that, he already had most of the information that we're learning about in chapter 7. Chapter 7 was given before that. When he went into the lion's den, he already knew most of this information. So we're just, but we're just now learning it. So in the first, chap, first section, we studied the four Hebrews in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we looked at the four empires. That's the chapter where Daniel uh, interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that God gave him that would demonstrate and give to, through Nebuchadnezzar the outline of history for the Gentile nations. And that has played itself out uh, precisely down through history, and that becomes the framework for understanding Daniel 7. You can't understand Daniel 7 unless you have the framework of Daniel 2 to begin with. Third chapter was the story of the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol. They're put in the fiery furnace. And then all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar looked in there and there weren't three men there. There was a fourth man in there who was like the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate body, appeared uh, there to demonstrate that he is the one who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and not even their clothes were singed. And then we saw the fall of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, as God taught Nebuchadnezzar who really put him on the throne. And then Nebuchadnezzar's salvation and his decree to the entire nation, basically his gospel tract that he wrote, and to witness to the entire Babylonian empire about the power of God and that God is the one who delivers. Then chapter 5, the fingers writing on the wall announcing the judgment of the Chaldean Empire and destruction that night by the armies of Cyrus under the general Gobrias. And then chapter 6, the false accusation against Daniel when he is put into the lion's den. That covered the first six chapters. Now let's get an overview of where we're going. A little bit of a road map of where we're headed. Chapter 7 through 12. First, we'll look at the vision of the four beasts in chapter 7. The vision of the four beasts in chapter 7. The four beasts relate to the four kingdoms pictured by, by uh, various metals, various precious metals in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 looked at them as man looks at them in terms of their strength, in terms of their value. Daniel chapter 7 looks at them from God's perspective, looking at the basic nature of man uh, as destructive. All of these beasts are carnivorous. They eat up man. They destroy man. And so we see a picture of the kingdom of man as basically self-destructive. Then we'll see the vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8, which talks about the rise of the uh, Greek empire and its eventual collapse and then the uh, rise of the Antichrist. Then and there'll be the vision of the 77s, that is the precise prophecy called Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, where God outlines to Daniel exactly how many days will occur between uh, the issuing of a decree for the Jews to be returned to the land. They were returned to the land starting in, in 536 B.C. And, but once... Uh, uh, Artaxerxes 
issued a decree for the Jews to go back to the land. Then from that day until the time they entered into the land, uh, it was 183,000 plus days. I think it was 183,880 days. And that worked out to the exact day that Jesus Christ as Messiah entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So here in 538 B.C., 537 B.C., somewhere in there, Daniel is given a prophecy that outlines down to the day how long it will be from the issuing of a decree by uh, Artaxerxes, from the issuing of that decree until the time the Messiah will be cut off. And that just can't happen by chance. It came down to within to the very day that he entered into the kingdom, and then he's rejected, and two days later, three days later, he's put on the cross. Vision of the 70 weeks. Then, fourth, we'll see the vision of the last days in chapters 10 through 12. So that's where we're headed in terms of our study of Daniel. Now, there are four things that come up in Israel's history around this time in the 6th century B.C. that demonstrate that God's game plan for history is going to radically shift. Up to this time, the focus has been on Israel and Israel in the land because God called out Israel as a special people, as a unique people through whom God would witness to the world. Now, remember, that was their primary mission was to be a witness to the world. Now, in the church age, the believer is to be a witness of the grace of God and of the message that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the missionary agency was, the, was Israel. In the New Testament, the church is to go out. Jesus said to the disciples, while you are going, teaching and baptizing uh, all to... teaching and baptizing while you are going all to obey me. And so the apostles were to go out under the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The disciples were to go out and take the gospel and go to the world. So that's the mission of the believers, to take the gospel out to all the different kingdoms and nations in the world. But in the Old Testament, the Jews didn't leave Israel and go out. The world came to them because God gave them a plot of land that sat astride all of the major trade routes linking Europe to North Africa to Asia. And so that the whole world came to Israel. And Israel was to be a witness living in the land under the Mosaic Law of the grace of God. They had a a system set up under the Mosaic Law that provided the greatest freedom any nation in the ancient world ever knew. And so as travelers would come, as caravanners would come, the truck drivers of the ancient world, and they would bring their goods to, and they were on their way to Egypt from Babylon or on their way to Europe from India, wherever they were, were, were headed, they would go through Israel and they would see this unique society, this unique culture. And they would say, what makes them different? And the Jews could tell them about what God did for them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, brought them across the Red Sea, took them through the wilderness, and then gave them the land and the victories that they had conquering the Canaanites as they took the land. But they failed. They failed miserably to fulfill their role and responsibility in the Old Testament. That's why God disciplined them and took them out under what we call the fifth cycle of discipline, five levels of judgments. God warned Israel that they would go through if they disobeyed him. And the ultimate or final or fifth cycle of discipline is that they would be defeated militarily and taken from the land. And that happened to the northern kingdom of 
Israel in 722 B.C. when they were destroyed by the armies of Assyria and it happened in the south in 586 B.C. to the kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's armies came in in 586 B.C. So Israel is brought back to the land but only a remnant comes back to the land at, after the Babylonian captivity. Many are still scattered throughout the land so there is a vast shift now. A shift and the first major characteristic is that God's historical plan is going to focus on the Gentile nations. There is the announcement here of God's historical plan for the Gentile nations through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. Now these Gentile empires, there were empires that preceded this. There was the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Hittite Empire, but they did not function as world-dominant empires in the same way that these empires after 600 B.C. function. So God is now going to work through these Gentile empires. Now, we live in an era when, when people aren't too, too crazy about empires, but that's how, what God is announcing. He's going to work through these Gentile nations. This was the statue we saw from Dan, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. It had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver, a uh, waist, hips of brass, legs of iron, and then the calves and or the ankles and the feet were a mix of iron and potter's clay. And Daniel interpreted that vision for uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He said Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head of gold. It's the most valuable metal. And uh, then the, he would be succeeded by a second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom for, that would exist from 539 to 331 B.C. That kingdom would then be succeeded by the brass, which represented the kingdom of Greece from 331 B.C. to 146 B.C. And then the final kingdom is iron. 146 B.C. to 1453 A.D. is the Roman Empire. But when the Roman Empire faded out, it's not replaced by another empire. And this shows that the West is going to continue to be dominant in history until it comes back together with weakened uh, elements as the final revival of the Roman Empire, and that's indicated by the iron and clay. Now, each of these kingdoms are going to be Restated and more detail is given. See, that's, that's the divine process of teaching. First, God gives us the overview in Daniel chapter 2, which is what I'm trying to do more, more so tonight, is to give us the overview of these things. To give us the overview. And then in Daniel 7, he's going to come in and he's going to talk about the same succession of kingdoms under different imagery. And the imagery of beasts. And then he's going to give more uh, specificity to each of these empires. And then in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, he's going to come back even again and deal more specifically with just two or three of these empires. And so by the time we get through uh, Daniel chapter 12, we'll we'll have learned a tremendous amount, not only about ancient history, but also God's plan and program for the future of mankind. So the first indication that something different was going to happen is the announcement of God's plan that he's going to work through these Gentile nations. Now let's look at this chart. Here is a chart laying out the um, 
basic dispensations, the basic outline of Israel's history into the church age. So we look here, we have the initial section here. Is the formation of Israel during the time of the patriarchs and Moses. That's followed by the period of the theocracy, which covers the time from their entrance into the land until Saul is anointed king. That covers the period of the judges and Ruth in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. That's followed by the monarchy and the divided monarchy covered in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And then they go out into exile, 586 B.C. This is followed by a restoration of the southern kingdom only. It's covered in Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi and the prophets. And that ends with the coming of Jesus Christ at the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of history. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to that. You have God's announcement after the fall of Adam in the garden that he would send a seed of the woman that would destroy the seed of the serpent. And that becomes a picture of what happens at the cross when Jesus Christ defeats evil by paying the penalty for sin. You see, what happens at the Garden of Eden is that God said, "There's, I'm going to give you everything. God provided everything that Adam and Eve would need in the Garden. He provided every food substance. He provided all the information they needed. Every day he came and he walked with them and they must have had incredible conversations as they were going out exploring this fantastic creation and they were trying to understand it all and they would sit there and they would have classes every day as they learned about God and learned about creation. But God had a test for them because God was not going to create a robot to just follow him blindly. He gave them an option. Love is not love unless it's given freely. And so there is an option, and their love for the for God was tested by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then God said there would be immediate consequence of spiritual death. And the there would be a number of subsequent consequences of that, which would bring evil into the, the human experience along with a multitude of suffering. And that's outlined in Genesis chapter 3. But as God pronounced the condemnation on them when they disobeyed him, he also gave them hope. He gave them the first promise that there would be a defeat of sin and that would take place at another tree on the cross. Because it's on the cross of Calvary that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that would take place in human history. And the Old Testament is leading up to that. And in Galatians 4.4 we're told it was in the fullness of time that Christ came through the woman. In the fullness of times means that God was working in human history to bring everything together so that it was the perfect situation for the coming of the Messiah. And it happened during the... the um, fourth kingdom, which is the Roman Empire under the time of the Pax Romana, when Rome controlled much of the area in Europe and Asia, so that it was a time of remarkable, unprecedented peace in that area, and the gospel could go out throughout the world. God prepared everything so that at just the right time, Jesus Christ came to the earth. Now, he paid the penalty for sin so that we don't have to. He truly paid the penalty, but the issue then is not our sin. 
too many churches running around trying to make a big deal out of everybody's sin, and that's just legalism, and it shows a lack of understanding the whole principle in Scripture called grace. Grace means a free gift. It means unmerited or undeserved favor or blessing. It means you don't get what you deserve. It means we get what we don't deserve. And at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God gives to us through what the Bible calls imputation. That means he credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God then looks on us, we have the perfect righteousness of Christ legally charged our account. And God then pronounces us justified. And at which time we are saved. Now, when it comes to the final judgment, the issue there is our works. See, anybody can come along and they can say, well, I did all kinds of great deeds and good deeds. I was very altruistic. I went to church. I was involved in religious activities. And I was involved in all kinds of ritual. But God adds it all up. And it still equals a lack of perfect righteousness. God says, now the sin's paid for, but I can only have fellowship with a creature that has perfect righteousness. If you don't have perfect righteousness, then we can't have eternal fellowship. So God says, because you lack perfect righteousness, you are condemned. That's the point of John 3:18, which says, He who, who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already. Notice the issue was he, not he that sinned is condemned already, but he who believes not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's the cross. Why the cross is the centerpiece of history. Christ died physically, rose from the dead. The Jews still rejected him as Messiah. So God has to bring them to a point through discipline before they will accept him as Messiah before he can return. That's what happens at the second coming. Here's the second coming right here. So right now we're in this age, the church age. It ends with what is called the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds and all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be instantaneously transferred to heaven. And that will be followed by a period on the earth, seven years of the most horrendous horror. It's going to make... Uh, 9-11, look, that, that kind of thing is going to happen on a daily basis for seven years. And the earth's population, over half the earth's population will be killed during that time before Jesus Christ returns bodily at the end of the battle of Armageddon to save the human race from final self-destruction. That's at the second coming. And then he establishes the kingdom on the earth because at that time, at the second coming, Israel, all the Jews finally accept him as Savior. Now, that's the panorama. Now, the Jews would be asking, well, how come if the plan and purpose of history ultimately revolves around us as Jews, what's going on with us back in the land and why are all these Gentile powers in control? And that's why God gave the vision to Nebuchadnezzar of the, uh, with the statue, is so that the Jews would know that God's plan, because they had failed in the Old Testament, God's plan was to operate through these Gentile nations in history. And these nations, once again, are the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, with uh, Alexander the Great, and then its, its division among his generals, and then the Roman Empire, and then finally ending in the revived Roman Empire 
that comes together during the tribulation period. So that gives us a breakdown and overview of God's plan, basic plan for history. That's announced. Now, the second indication that things are going to be different from what the Jews had expected is the announcement in Jeremiah 22 that occurred in 598 B.C. Now, Daniel was a student of Jeremiah. Daniel had the scrolls that Jeremiah wrote with him in Babylon. And we know that he read them and studied them. And in Jeremiah 22, God revealed to Jeremiah that the, the, and announced the end of the Solomonic dynasty. Now, remember, God had promised David in the Davidic covenant that he would have an eternal seed. In other words, one of David's descendants would sit on the throne for all eternity. That referred to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater son of David who fulfilled over 300 prophecies given in the Old Testament for the Messiah. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would be betrayed for a certain specific price. And all of the other prophecies related to uh, the coming of Messiah. And he was not a descendant through Solomon. Solomon's line ended with the Kaniah curse because Jeconiah was such an evil king, God said, that never in history again would one of his descendants sit on the throne. So it was through another son of David, not Solomon, but through another son that uh, Jesus Christ would come, that the Messiah would come. Third point of difference announced in Ezekiel 8 through 11, which occurred in 591 B.C., the Shekinah glory, that that visible, pre, visible evidence of the presence of God in the temple in Jerusalem departed. The Shekinah glory had been there associated with the Ark of the Covenant since the Exodus. During the time of the Exodus, it went before the Jews as a uh, pillar of fire at night and as a cloud by day. And it led them through the wilderness. It was always there. When Moses went into the Holy of Holies and God spoke with him, when he came out, there was a glow on his face. He had to wear a veil over it because it was still reflecting the glory of God from inside the, uh, Ark of the Co- inside the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. So the Shekinah glory leaves as a sign that God is now going to judge Israel. He's removing his presence from the nation. And then fourth, Second Kings 25 uh, which occurred in 586 B.C., we have the fall of Jerusalem. All of these were indications that God's plan for history was going to go in a new direction. And from this point on, from the 6th century or 7th century B.C., from uh, 600 B.C. on, things would be different. Now, there were going to be three new characteristics that were announced in relationship to the kingdom of man. Remember, the, the statue that we've just looked at. The statue represents the history of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man began with the Tower of Babel. After the Noahic flood, man was supposed to scatter and fill the earth. He failed. Instead of obeying God, he disobeyed God, set up his own kingdom in antagonism to God. That man was going to make a name for himself and disobey God. So that's the beginning of the kingdom of man concept, which goes through history. It began in Babel. It is characterized by man in autonomy, in independence from God, and in hostility to God. It is man uh, trying to exercise dominion on the planet apart from God. 
and what we've been studying on Sunday morning, worldly thinking or cosmic thinking, is the human viewpoint thinking generated by man independently of God. Now, the kingdom of man is kept in check. The kingdom of man ultimately is being influenced, motivated by Satan in order to bring in his ultimate kingdom. Now, that is held in abeyance until the tribulation when God pulls out all restraints and everything uh, goes, goes crazy in terms of Satan trying to gain control of human history. So there are these new characteristics. And because Satan does not know when that time is going to come, when Jesus Christ is going to return at the rapture, that means that at every time in history, every decade, every generation, he has to have his man, his system ready to go. That's why you always hear, you know, every now and then you'll be in the supermarket and you'll look at the Midnight Globe. You, know, you don't want anybody to know you read those things. But you'll see the headline on the National Enquirer or one of them. They'll say the Antichrist is born in some place. And, you know, like very well could be for that generation, you know. It just is because it's not the rapture generation. It never comes to fruition. But in every generation, Satan has to be ready with his man, with his plan, with his program in order to bring about his attempt for world domination. Okay, three new characteristics then are revealed in Daniel on the kingdom of man. The first is that the kingdom of man is going to be based on these Gentile empires. And it will be through empires that God protects Israel and sets up the environment in which the gospel can go forth. We think about the great uh, empires in the ancient world during the Babylonian Empire, during the Persian Empire, during the Greek Empire, and Roman Empire. Jews are scattered. You have the diaspora that took place in 586. Diaspora is the Latin word for dispersion. And the Jews were scattered throughout the Gentile Empire. See, see, they wouldn't witness to the Gentiles when the Gentiles came to them. So God said, I'm going to take you out of the land and I'm going to scatter you among all the Gentile nations. So from this point on, if you were a Gentile in, in Greece or if you were a Gentile in, in modern Iran or Iraq and the Persian Empire and you wanted to know about God, then there was a Jew handy who could give you the gospel and could teach you about God. And so God is now going to scatter the Jews throughout these um, empires. And it is through imperialism that God is going to bring periods of peace and stability in the history of mankind so that there can be advances, technological advances in human history. The greatest advances that have taken place in human history have taken place during times uh, of, of great uh, imperial control it took place uh, under Rome in the Middle Ages. You, you, you had such a such a fragmentation that there's no great advances that take place until you have a peace and stability restored uh, through various uh, uh, European dominions in the 16th, 17th century, and then you have. But as Western Europe comes together and is unified then uh, you have a, a, an environment whereby things can advance. And then you have the Pax Britannica, the British Empire in the 19th century, and the advance uh, throughout the ancient world. But it is always under the dominion of the West and Western Europe. This is evidence. Even the, the Bolsheviks in Russia uh, came to control because of the West. It was in uh, 1917 that Bolsheviks would have been crushed except for a gold shipment that came from investors in uh, New York. 
And if it hadn't been for that gold that the, the Bolsheviks received that brought them arms and, and weapons, they never would have uh, been successful against the Tsar. Uh, all technology that's been developed in the last 50 or 60 years had its source in the West. Now, you may have great imitators in Japan and in a- other countries in Asia that are manufacturing and developing once the, once the breakthroughs occurred. But all the breakthroughs occurred because of scientists in, uh, in Europe and in America. You know, the big joke, for those of you old enough to remember it, remember after World War II, the, the story was that our German scientists were better than the Russians' German scientists. Because after World War II, the, the CIA pulled all the German scientists they could out of Germany, all the Nazis, and brought them in to the U.S. so that we could get uh, a head start on the Russians. But the Russians were doing the same thing. They took all the Nazi scientists that they could to Russia. So our German scientists were better than their German scientists. But it ultimately was all development from German scientists. So all of this shows that Israel has been sidelined during this period, but they are still the crux, the focal point of history. Luke 21:24 gives us the terminology. Jesus said they, during the tribulation they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. They're talking about the Jews. That they will be led captive into all the nations. This took place in 70 A.D. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. And from that time to the present, even when there has been a nation in the, of Israel in the land, they've been a minority of Jews. They are not all the Jews have returned. They've just been a minority. Most have been in the uh, diaspora. But once they return uh, to the land, it was still under the protection of some Gentile power. If Western Europe, specifically Britain, and the U.S. were to withdraw our protection from Israel, it would disappear tomorrow. Israel exists today only because of the protective umbrella provided by the United States and Britain. And ultimately, in this crisis right now, presidents putting together this coalition, there's really only uh, us, Great Britain, and and, uh, Israel. And remember that as the days approach, because once we start having to do something like go into Iraq and uh, do some other things we need to do in order to root out these terrorists, you're going to see a lot of these coalition allies disappear in a hurry. All of this is based on the Abrahamic covenant of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a specific piece of real estate. He promised seed descendants that would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, and blessings. These were later developed in the Land Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Remember that. We'll come back to that in just a minute. All of this relates to the Abrahamic Covenant. So God is going to bless nations because of how they treat Israel. That becomes one of the major causes in history. Second, second characteristic of Gentile powers is that the Gospel and the Word of God is now going to be carried throughout the nations by the Jews in the diaspora. The gospel and the word of God is carried throughout the the nations by the Jews in the uh, diaspora. Jews are no longer a threat nationally uh, until just recently, but that is because, I think, 
because we are nearing the end of the church age and it is part of the angelic conflict. But that's another, another study for another night. Point number three, the third characteristic of the new, is the new norm of the kingdom of man after 600 B.C. is that God introduces the concept of hope, confident expectation, long-term expectation. Technically, Israel could have brought in the millennium in the Old Testament if they had trusted God. But they didn't. I mean, just hypothetically. They could have brought in the millennium if they had accepted Jesus as Messiah at the first advent. But they didn't. What God introduces here with this plan of history is that telling the Jews in the Old Testament it's going to be a long time, baby. It's going to be a long time. And it's not going to all come together next year or next century. It's going to take centuries before everything is finally fulfilled. So this shows us that history, history has significance and meaning from a biblical perspective. That means history, as it is so often said, is his story. It is out, the outworking of the plan and purpose of God. That's why history is, should be important to every believer because he understands something about history. Now let's look at something we covered on Sunday morning. This is just a brief review of what's happened in intellectual history or the history of ideas in the last couple of hundred years. What we have is a house, picture of a house. You have the downstairs where you have a staircase going up to the second floor. Downstairs we have the details of life. Tonight we're studying history, so downstairs you have the details of history. All the events of history, all the details, the ebb and flow of history. But there's an upstairs where there are universals that exist of absolutes and God. And God is the God of history, and God tells us the meaning and significance of history, that it's going in a particular direction, that there is a purpose to the events of history, and that ultimately history is going to resolve the various problems that have been generated by evil. But see, what happened historically, as we studied the other night, when a man named Immanuel Kant came along at the end of the... uh, 18, or at the end of the 1700s, into the 18th century, he said that um, man really doesn't know, can't know absolutes, can't know God, can't know universals. All he can know is his own perception. And in other words, what he said, his a priori idea, that means his uh, preconceived notion was God really can't speak to men. All men can do is tell you what they think about God, but it's impossible. See, his preconceived notion is it's impossible for God upstairs to talk downstairs. You can't get up there anymore. He said that staircase doesn't exist. And what that did in terms of the ideas of Western history was to uh, Western civilization was to destroy the meaning in history. Because now there's no upstairs which gives meaning to history. We're just left to random details. And so what happens is historians and historiographers tend to use history just to, to and to manipulate history just to communicate uh, whatever their agenda is, and so they twist it and shape it to whatever they want to. And you had all kinds of different ideas that came up in the 19th century from logical positivism, which said that the basic cause of, of, uh, of, human, uh, 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 of human history, the basic uh, causative force, is just the intellectual evolution of the human race. Now, positivism was optimistic, but not all systems were. Uh, uh, Spengler, Oswald Spengler, was a... Uh, 
had a cyclical view of history, and he was very negative. Uh, Toynbee had a cyclical history also. He was more positive. But see, what all of these systems are doing, they're trying to interpret history. They're all looking down here in this lower level, and they're picking some detail of, of human experience, and they're elevating it and trying to make it and push it up the stairs to give meaning to everything else. You know, that's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. It's professing themselves to be wise, they become fools, and they worship the creature rather than the creator. Once you take the creator out of the upstairs, so that the creator can no longer talk to the creature to tell him the purpose and meaning of life, the purpose and meaning of history, what God is doing, then you're just everybody's just running around guessing. They've all got blindfolds on trying to play pin the tail on the donkey, but they've taken the donkey away. And that's where modern man is. So no wonder most people think history is boring. Because for the last 200 years, uh, the intellectuals have done all that they could to destroy history. Because history is a foundation to, uh, to understanding many things in the Word of God. And if history is irrelevant, then that is another assault on the Bible and the Word of God. So they end up with no meaning, no God, existential darkness and despair. And everybody just runs around thinking that anybody who believes in God is just some kind of irrational idiot. Now, God says there is meaning to history. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he explained the significance of this to Moses and to the Jews. And he said that Israel was the key to history. In Deuteronomy 32.7, he says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of all the generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. See, that's history. Go back and talk to your parents. Talk to your grandparents. Talk to your great-grandparents about what I did in bringing the nation Israel out of Egypt. It is history. In space-time events, God came down and brought ten plagues on the nation, Israel, on the nation of Egypt and virtually destroyed them, wiped out all the firstborn in every family so that it would finally bring Pharaoh to his knees to release the slaves. And so the nation left, all three million of them, maybe more, and then God delivered them in, by a miracle in space-time history by separating the waters of the Red Sea, drying the ground instantaneously so that they could depart Egypt across the Red Sea. It happened historically, and there were markers. Then when they came into the land, he did the same thing again. He split the waters of the Jordan River so that the, the nation could come in on dry land. There was a miracle there as he's giving birth to the nation, so to speak. And then when they crossed the land, they were to take these rocks and build a rock cairn or a monument, 12 rocks, as a historical marker. God's not going to do this again, but there's going to be this marker there. So every time you and your kids are out having a picnic and you see this pile of 12 rocks, you say, Daddy, what's that there for? And then the, your, your dad's going to say, okay, this is what God did at this point in time in history. And so God emphasizes the importance of history. History is his, uh, a record of his actions, objectively. Now, he goes on in verse 8, Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, and that God directs history and the ebb and flow and the rise and fall of nations. He gives them their, their properties, their inheritance. That is, the word in the Hebrew indicates their, their national boundaries, that nations are from God. You know, internationalism is not from God. There, God established national distinctions at the Tower of Babel for the survival of the human race. 
when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated, notice this, when he separated the sons of man, as he divides up the nations, he set the boundaries of the peoples, that is the Gentiles, according to the number of the sons of Israel. That means God works out history in relationship to Israel. What's the number one causative factor in history? It's God's plan and purposes for Israel. Secondly, it relates to believers. Third, it relates to the pagan practices of Gentile nations so that when they become uh, perverted to a certain degree like Sodom and Gomorrah, then he brings judgment on them. But primarily, it has to do with his plan for Israel and in the church age, his plan uh, for church age believers. This goes back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God established the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you, and that includes Abraham and all his descendants, a great nation, and I will bless you. See, that's grace. Abraham didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God freely gave it to him. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And that was a command. It just sounds like it's a declarative statement, but in the Hebrew, it's a command. You will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And how would people bless Abram down through the ages? By accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, because he is the seed. He is the ultimate focal point. He, he, He is the focal point of blessing through Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you... And see, the word there for curse... There are two English two times the English word curse is used in this verse, but they're different Hebrew words. The one who curses you, the first curse is a Hebrew word which means treat you lightly. And the way you treat Abram lightly, the most uh, basic way is to reject Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who curses you, the one who treats you lightly, I will curse. And that comes through the eternal condemnation. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? Because it's through Abraham that Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, will eventually come. And anyone who puts their faith alone in Christ alone can have eternal salvation and receive this same blessing. So Abraham then becomes the key, and Israel becomes the key to understanding history. Now, the next thing that's going to happen is as we get into this, Daniel 7, we're going to have to understand some things about the interpretation of prophecy. There are a number of symbols that are used in this chapter that uh, are used in Zechariah, they're used in Revelation, they're used in Matthew. And to understand all those prophecies, we have to understand what's going on here in Daniel 7. So we will start there in Daniel 7, verse 1. I got through four pages of... Twelve pages of notes I had for tonight. So we will... This is good stuff. We will have a lot of fun uh, coming to understand this in the coming weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together this evening and study your word to understand that even though there may be chaotic things going on in history around us, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can relax knowing that you are in charge. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul says we 
Believe on him who died according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he is the source of eternal life. All you have to do right where you sit is simply put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't have to uh, reform your life. You don't have to make a deal with God. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to uh, engage in any particular ritual. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. Help us to gain greater perspective on the events of history and how you are working things out for your ultimate glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.